Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The year is 395 AD. Theodosius, the last sole ruler of the Roman Empire, is dead. The Western Roman Empire falls under the control of the Vandal General Stilicho, regent to the child emperor Honorius, whilst in the east, the adolescent Arcadius comes under the control of the Praetorian Prefect Rufinus. When the murder of the Praetorian Prefect, in front of thousands of witnesses, goes unpunished, the imperial court of the east is plunged into chaos as senators and officials scheme and connive to gain control of the empire. Out of the chaos rises a eunuch, ruthless, hungry for power, and determined to put his troubled past behind him. The murder triggers an army of barbarians commanded by a Gothic king to go on a rampage through Greece unchecked. In the midst of the carnage, a farmhand and an army veteran make a journey to Constantinople to raise the alarm, but become entrapped in the intrigue and street politics of the city. Meanwhile, a young, ambitious procurator discovers a plot that threatens to undermine the very fabric of the Roman Empire. With the help of a Persian money changer and a loyal Gothic bodyguard, he follows the trails of clues deep into the underworld of Constantinople and across the sea to Cyzicus, where strange happenings in the Imperial Mint raise more questions than answers. Events come to a head in the Peloponnese when the Western Empire lands an army to remove the barbarian horde from Greece. But Constantinople employs a daring political gambit which causes the two halves of the empire to lock horns in a battle, both sides vying for supremacy over the whole Roman Empire. It is in these years that the guardians of Byzantium are born, a secret organisation that guards the Byzantine Empire and keeps it alive for a thousand years after the West has fallen to barbarians. My name is Justin Isaacs, and I invite you to read The Guardians of Byzantium. I was inspired to write this book by Robin Pearson and his amazing History of Byzantium podcast, and I am indebted to Robin for his help in the writing of this book and allowing me to promote it on his podcast. If you like historical fiction with a good mixture of political intrigue, hints of mysticism, battlefield action, drama and humour, then I'd like to think that this book will be for you. The Guardians of Byzantium Book 1 is now out on Amazon, today.
Now back to Robin Pearson and the history of Byzantium. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 250, Retaking Anatolia. Over the last couple of episodes we've looked at the division of power and population in Anatolia. In the decades after the Battle of Manzikert, both Romans and Turks had reason to believe that this new state of affairs was temporary. The Seljuks certainly had one eye on returning to the Muslim mainstream, while the Byzantines clearly felt that once the Balkans were quiet, they'd be able to recapture cities in Anatolia and slowly turn the Turkic tide. A century later, as Manuel Komnenos lay dying, I think both sides had come to accept that this was the status quo. The Romans were in no immediate danger of losing further territory, and the Seljuk leadership seems to have abandoned its ambitions to expand eastwards. If there is truth in the idea that Kilij Arslan II was willing to convert to Christianity, then it tells us something very significant. That the Seljuks saw Anatolia as their home now, and would consider extreme measures to stay in power. By the end of Manuel's reign, conversion to Christianity probably was the most likely route to seeing Anatolia return to the empire. Militarily, the Romans had failed to make any progress. John Komnenos had enjoyed some success playing off the Danishmen's against the Seljuks, but now Iconium ruled all and the failure at Myriokephalon would discourage Manuel's successors from attempting anything so grand any time soon. So, what had gone wrong? You've been listening to the podcast, so you know, right? Roman armies, like the armies of all settled peoples, struggled against steppe nomads. Born in the saddle horse archers were like centaurs, they had skills and speed and accuracy with a bow that was beyond normal men. They also didn't have a power centre to protect. Roman armies liked a target, one they could surround and destroy. The nomads had no home that you could attack. I suppose you could burn their winter village. You could even destroy their herds. But unless you kept that pressure up relentlessly they would just scatter, safe in the knowledge that settled peoples had to go home eventually. They would run out of food and give up and go back to their warm beds in their warm towns. Men of the steppe were willing to sleep under the stars and endure the heat and the cold. They would outlast their enemies most of the time. The Romans did not devise new tactics to combat the nomad domination of the plateau. They continued to target cities. John tried to capture Neo-Caesarea. Manuel bet the farm on sacking Iconium. But had those cities fallen, it's uncertain whether it would have affected the balance of power in Anatolia. The Third Crusade will sack Iconium, and the Seljuks will shrug it off. For those wondering why the Byzantines did things this way, again, hopefully the narrative has given you an idea. 
When Alexius took power, a series of generals in Anatolia had abandoned their positions, handing cities to the Turks, and attempted to capture Constantinople for themselves. So Alexius insisted on leading the armies in person, and keeping the elites on campaign with him. This was a tactic which his son and grandson would continue, and it was very successful in two ways. One, it stopped civil wars from reoccurring, and two, it prevented enemies from rising in the Balkans. The Normans, the Pechenegs, the Serbs, the Hungarians, all had been flattened by the traditional Byzantine army, led by an emperor. Of course, what worked in the Balkans failed in Anatolia. The Romans could only attack when the Balkans were quiet, and when they did, they were like an elephant chasing a herd of impala. The slow-moving baggage train that a large army required made it easy for the nomads to see the emperor coming and get out of his way. So, what else could the Komnenoi have done? They didn't really have enough soldiers to field two sizable armies at the same time, and even if they had done, that would have been extremely risky. It would invite the general left in Anatolia to consider rebellion and a move on the capital, as had happened just before Alexius's rise to power. As we've seen with Manuel's life story, family members couldn't really be trusted either. Manuel essentially betrayed his older brother to seize power, and then faced constant agitation from his cousin Andronicus. Perhaps the Komnenoi could have brought back eunuch generals, but that might have upset the power balance within the wider family. And it was no good suggesting a Latin general either, since again, early in Alexius's career, he'd had to kidnap the Norman general Rousseau de Bayeux, who had seized a portion of Anatolia for himself and was flouting imperial authority. In the wake of the Second Crusade, this was inconceivable anyway. A Latin kingdom in Anatolia would almost certainly be used against Constantinople. During his Myriocephalon campaign, Manuel had tried to interest the Latins in seeing Iconium as a crusading target, but no one was buying it. Jesus was not born on the Anatolian plateau. So if the central government was struggling to retake territory, then what about the Romans living in Anatolia? Couldn't they take on the Turks themselves, field by field, fort by fort? A rigorous defence of their homeland, conducted guerrilla style, making life unpleasant enough for the nomads that they might steer clear of the border? This is a subject that we addressed back in episode 200. That was my tribute to Professor Mark Witto, who analysed this question with a comparative approach. He looked at the Spanish Reconquista and the Norman capture of Sicily and saw parallels with the loss of Anatolia. In each theatre, he pointed out, the battle was between a centralised and a decentralised power or, to put it another way, a more militarised society versus a less militarised one. In this case, the Turkic nomads sit on the side of the equation with the Spanish and the Normans. 
All three were warrior societies where those fighting were determined to seize land and defend it as their own. Facing them were the Byzantines and the Muslim authorities in Spain and Sicily, all of whom were run by centralized bureaucracies who collected taxes and used the proceeds to pay for a centrally run army. In each case, the fighting between the major armies was reasonably even. It's what went on in between that made the difference. The Spanish and the Normans would fight tooth and nail to maintain any forts they captured. Muslim raids were met with counterattacks immediately. This meant that day by day the Spanish and Normans were working hard to improve the land and keep it, whereas their enemies were waiting for instructions from their government. This is how events played out in Anatolia too. Roman aristocrats fled to Constantinople when the going got tough. They did not stay to defend their estates. The Turks faced no counterattacks. The Byzantines who stayed behind either hid from them or made deals with them. Then everyone waited for the emperor to lead an army out to respond. Professor Witto argues that the major difference between the Latins and the Byzantines was the relationship between land and power. In the West, land was everything. Men collected tax directly from the peasants who worked their estates, so the more land you had, the more powerful you were. And men without land were always looking to acquire it. In Byzantium, power came with your proximity to the emperor, because he distributed tax revenue. So when Anatolia was lost, the elites were sad, but they were not screaming for reconquest, because as long as they maintained their position at court, they would remain rich. Thrace was a perfectly nice place to find a new home anyway. The Romans left behind in Anatolia were largely ordinary farmers and merchants. They continued to live their lives as they always had done. They didn't have the time or resources to turn themselves into self-sufficient knights who could tackle the Turks. And Roman society had always worked against the build-up of private power. That's why the Byzantines didn't build castles in the same way Western Europeans did. That would only encourage local aristocrats to thumb their nose at the state. As Manuel Komnenos lay dying, though, it was not clear that Anatolia would one day become Turkey. The military situation was a stalemate. The Byzantine position wasn't crumbling. It was only the sack of Constantinople in 1204 that would get that ball rolling. So let's play alternate history for a moment. Was there a scenario where the Byzantines could have broken through? I think that probably depends on the Crusades. As you may know, the Fourth Crusade was designed to capture Egypt. Had a successful Latin kingdom of Egypt been established, then it would have been much easier for Jerusalem and the other lands of Outremia to survive. In a scenario where the Crusader states looked strong and likely to endure, and Constantinople was not sacked, then the world around Anatolia would have become increasingly Christian. In that world, stories of pilgrims being hijacked on the plateau would have gained greater attention. The threat of a major Latin campaign to destroy Iconium and other cities might have put pressure on the Seljuks to convert, or at least to rein in the nomads themselves. It was a scenario similar to this that had Kilij Arslan allegedly 
contemplating conversion. Conversion was the path which the Bulgars, the Rus, and the Magyars had all taken. They wanted to be treated differently by their powerful Christian neighbours, and so they made the switch. Surrounded by Latins, Armenians, Georgians, and Romans, it was not so far-fetched that the Turks would follow suit. A Turkish-run Christian state would not then have immediately been absorbed by Byzantium, but there's a good chance that Greek would have become the language of the state, and once that was in place, there was an obvious path towards reunion with Constantinople. This is the scenario that seems most likely to me. So long as the Turks bordered the Muslim world, I think it unlikely that their leaders would have abandoned Islam. But if they were surrounded by Christian powers, it would become a possibility. Of course, if the Byzantines remained a powerful empire, then all sorts of possibilities open up. The Mongols will invade Anatolia in 1241. Who knows what might have happened in that world? But let's get back to reality and some listener questions, which will hopefully flesh out our understanding of the situation. Listener KP asks whether the Romans copied the tactics which the Crusaders used against the Turks. The answer is both yes and no. Yes, as in they hired Latin mercenaries to fight for them, but no, if you're asking whether the Latins had better tactics which the Romans should have been using. There was no real difference between Latin knights and Byzantine heavy cavalry if it came to a straight one-on-one fight, and both could be useless and useful when fighting nomads. If you could pin a group of steppe archers down, then a heavy cavalry charge was very effective. But if heavily armoured horses had to chase the nomads, then there was only going to be one winner. The steppe archers would retreat until the knights were exhausted and then pick them off. Remember that the Crusaders only really succeeded against the nomads once up to this point in history the Battle of Dorylaeum in the First Crusade, where the Latins succeeded by sheer strength of numbers. That was the only tactic they used. After that, the Latins moved on to Syria and Palestine, where they were fighting regular armies with cavalry and infantry, um, as they were used to fighting. Uh, You know, not a pure steppe force. And it's worth remembering that the First Crusade was particularly... Uh, fortunate that all the Muslim enemies it faced tried to annihilate them in one go, opening themselves up to having to fight man-to-man with the heavily armoured, more motivated uh, Latins. Um, As you probably know, the Crusader states, you know, slowly recede as better disciplined Muslim armies with different tactics slowly pick them off. So the Latins were more successful than the Byzantines, you know, in fighting the Muslim troops of the Middle East, but that's different to the pure steppe archer armies that roamed the plateau. And, of course, we should remember that every other Latin army that tried to cross the plateau was annihilated. Listener DT and LW both ask about whether the Romans could have practiced more with a bow and arrow 
Couldn't they have trained their own horse archers to counter the Turks? And both listeners bring up the fact that I talked about the Romans doing just that back in the days of Maurice's Strategicon. Maurice's military handbook did indeed recommend that professional cavalrymen should be able to shoot from horseback, and the very best could. When we talked about Nicephorus Focus's heavy cavalry charges, men were chosen who could shoot while riding in formation. But as I said earlier, no matter how well trained you were, you could never match the skills of even an average man of the steppe. These skills required a lifetime of practice, and the Romans could only afford to pay a limited number of men to be full-time professional cavalry. That's why their armies relied on large infantry divisions. Infantry require much less training and can be recruited on the way to battle. Plus, the idea of fighting tactics when it comes to this Comnenian century is not really the main issue. The reason the Romans lost Anatolia wasn't because of the tactics of steppe archers, but the strategic problem they created. When Manuel marched his giant army towards Myriokephalon, he faced no resistance. The nomads weren't stupid. They weren't going to attack a huge army head-on. The problem was that the Romans couldn't deliver a knockout blow. Even if they'd taken Iconium, it wouldn't really have hurt the nomads. Since we're on that topic, listener B asks whether the PR coup of sacking Iconium would have been worth it in the long run, even if the city could not be held. I think this one depends on whether it helps stop Constantinople from being sacked in 1204, because the PR value of the victory evaporates if that event still happens. I suppose there are scenarios where that victory bolsters Manuel's reputation to such an extent that the elites prevent Andronicus, his cousin, from taking power and eventually killing Manuel's son. But I think there are too many hoops to jump through to make that certain. Listener XB asks why no new military manuals were written to develop ideas about how to fight the nomads. Just to take the question literally, the Roman army didn't really commission these texts, as far as we can tell. It was the decision of individual authors to write them, sometimes with other goals in mind, like advertising their own skills and CV. I produced a bonus episode on the Strategicon of a general named Kekavmenos, where I talked about this in more detail. and You can find that on Patreon. A lot of these military manuals did not offer much in the way of fresh insight. Often they were literary exercises and repeated ideas the author had read in previous editions. Sometimes going all the way back to Maurice's Strategicon, which was clearly a classic of the genre. Maurice, or whoever really wrote it, did talk about how to deal with nomads, to avoid chasing them, to deny them fodder, to attack them at night or in winter. But all of these tactics presume that you're trying to keep the nomads at bay until they leave. This was, of course, how the Romans dealt with nomads in the Balkans. The Balkans offers no natural home for men from the steppe beyond the lands just south of the Danube River. The rest of the region is rugged and broken, filled with swamps, forests, mountain ranges, 
so once nomads were loose in the Balkans, it was a matter of wearing them down, trying to ambush them or trapping them so that they'd have to fight hand to hand. No one had ever written any advice about how to drive steppe archers off the plateau itself, since the Romans never imagined that nomads would reach the centre of Anatolia. I'm sure advice could have been given on how best to fight the Turks under this new circumstance, but the Romans had not yet discovered how to fully defeat them. Let me elaborate on this with the help of the next question. A listener I asks, when did the possibility pass for good of grinding the Turks down, a la the Pechenegs, and incorporating them into the Roman bloodstream? So here we are, you know, the Pechenegs attacked the empire in the Balkans, where the lack of suitable terrain meant that ultimately the Romans could back them into a corner and force them into a pitched battle. The Anatolian plateau, by contrast, is too vast for this to be possible. If the Romans held all the towns of Anatolia, and it was just a few tribes of nomads loose on the plateau, then this could have been done. But as it was, the nomads had loads of places to go and hide until the Romans disappeared. I'm sure most of you know this, but perhaps it needs to be stated. The distance between, say, Nicaea and Manzikert is about 1,400 kilometers, or 870 miles. Anatolia itself is about 900 kilometers, 550 miles, north to south. This was a huge region. If the nomads had wanted a pitched battle every time the Romans marched out to meet them, then eventually the greater organisation of the empire would have prevailed. But the nomads would just back away if the going got tough. How do you trap an army when they have hundreds and hundreds of miles to manoeuvre in? The fact that the towns of eastern Anatolia were in Muslim hands made the task virtually impossible. If the Romans were to commit to chasing a steppe tribe around the plateau until they trapped them, they would expose their flank to attack from one of the nomads' settled allies. Or perhaps just another tribe. As the Chinese and countless other settled peoples had found over the years, it was a task beyond them to fight the nomads in their own backyard. So to listener I's question, it was probably always impossible for the Romans to grind the Turks down and absorb them, as they had done with the Pechenegs. That's why I suggest that it would have taken a much wider Christian world, or indeed a, a Mongol invasion, something dramatic to break the power of the Turks to such an extent that Constantinople could make real gains. Just to take the question uh, in a different way, though, um, if you're asking at what point did this scenario where the Turks dominate the plateau, become inevitable, then we probably have to go back to Manzikert. Not just the battle itself, but the civil wars that followed. I have uh, seen listeners you know, suggest, could the Romans have uh, transported tribes from the Danube region, Cumans, Pechenegs, to fight for them in Anatolia? Um, you know, we're taking you to fight people who are like you and, you know, you're our allies and you'll help us. Uh, you know, obviously it's quite difficult to persuade a tribe living north of the Danube that they want to be forcibly migrated uh, somewhere else. But even if you could, I think the Romans would have been afraid that these tribes would have seen, you know, the Anatolian plateau and gone, well, this is a nice place to live. And, you know, even if they'd beaten the Turks, they would have then become the new enemy. 
And, um, you know, steppe tribes tended to operate outside of monotheistic religions, at least on the plateau north of the Danube. So sort of converting tribes to Christianity in order to fight tribes who've converted to Islam, it, it gets very complicated and very unlikely you could control those tribes. Their, the nature of their lifestyle meant they weren't going to have allegiance to Constantinople. Listener LW asks what the various Komnenian domestics did while the emperors were on campaign. The domestic of the Scoli being the title for senior general in the Roman army. He elaborates, did Tatikios and Aksuk accompany Alexius and John on campaign all the time? Were they guarding the frontier when the emperors left? What role did the domestic have while these, you know, successful general emperors were leading the army in person most of the time? It's a great question and I don't have a definitive answer. Um, these men, uh, you know, you remember John Aksuk and um, Tatikios, who worked with Alexius. They are mentioned occasionally, and usually they are on campaign with their emperor, often leading the vanguard while the emperor is at the back. Um, on the few occasions where troops were divided up, then the domestic would lead the other part of the army. So Aksuk was sent to oversee the invasion of Italy while Manawil was back at Constantinople. I don't remember reading that the domestic was left behind at the capital during these campaigns. That doesn't prove that they weren't, but I suspect they were always with the army, as their role would imply. Finally, listener DT asks if it was worth trying to recapture Anatolia at all, given the lack of defensible terrain. He also brings up something I said which is that in theory more tribes could enter Anatolia through the Armenian mountains to replace those killed by the Romans. If that could still happen, then doesn't it make any reconquest of the plateau a non-starter? Two good questions. I think it was in Byzantium's interests to constantly put the Turks under pressure. If they didn't, then the nomads would certainly have kept probing away to see if they could get a bigger piece of the pie. And they should certainly have kept looking for opportunities to undermine or damage the Seljuk cause. As I mentioned a few episodes ago, Kilij Arslan II will die soon and leave a divided realm. In times like that, a concerted Roman response could bring the empire a significant victory. But it's certainly fair to argue that it was a waste of time to attempt campaigns like Myriokephalon, and after that particular failure, many Byzantines would have agreed. As for more tribes traversing the mountains, this is one that it's harder to speculate about. No new tribes seem to have entered Anatolia during this period, but nomads were active over in Azerbaijan on the other side of the Armenian mountains. The mountain ranges themselves uh, were divided between the Georgians and various Muslim governors who held the Armenian fortress towns, nominally on behalf of Baghdad, but increasingly for their own ends. I think there is a chance that if the Romans made significant progress on the plateau, that other Muslim tribes might be encouraged to migrate there to stop them. But this would entirely depend on political conditions in the moment um, across half a dozen states in that region. What I think is important to bear in mind is that if the Romans were somehow to drive all the nomads from the plateau, the job would not be over. 
They would then have to install strong defences to prevent another invasion, or attempt the reconquest of the mountain cities that controlled the routes into Anatolia, a project that would take enormous amounts of men, money, and political will. We're basically talking about reenacting the process which took 200 years back in the days of the Macedonians. So yeah, it was a long road back to get the empire in the shape it had been before the Battle of Mans occurred. Sadly, all this speculation is irrelevant because of the events which follow Manawil's death. And that's where we'll be heading, eventually, back to the narrative and the return of Andronicus Komnenos. It sounds like I'll have one more episode for you soon, as an interviewee has become available. But then there will be a period of silence on the feed while I produce all the episodes to take us through to 1204 AD. You'll then get all those podcasts in a row so that your enjoyment of the story is not interrupted by the arrival of a history of Byzantium baby. Thank you all so much for your kind messages about my impending parenthood, and if you want some Byzantine content in the meantime, then check out the book Guardians of Byzantium by Jason Isaacs. In the next few days, you should be able to get the ebook for free again, so check it out on Amazon and Kindle and all the usual places. Bye for now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.